Our first uh, speaker will be Professor Robin Dunbar, who's currently the Professor of Evolutionary Anthropology and Director of the Institute of Cognitive and Evolutionary Anthropology in the School of Anthropology and a Fellow of Magdalen College here at Oxford. He's also a Fellow of the British Academy. His claim to fame relates to work in uh, social evolution, the evolution of sociality and social cognition, um, and he's begun to work more recently on evolutionary and cognitive approaches uh, to religion. And the title of Robin's talk is, Is Religion Adaptive? Integrating Cognition and Function. Commenting will be Professor Janet Radcliffe-Richards of the Faculty of Philosophy. Okay, so I'm going to really try and sketch a rather broad picture for you and uh, uh, develop a, 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 an approach that we've been um, working on uh, in order to kind of understand religion and why it might have evolved, as it were. So I suppose my starting point really has been that nothing that's really as costly uh, and which and apparently maladaptive as religion can really be maladaptive. That's a kind of, if you like, the the base position evolutionary biologists always adopt. If it costs something, the likelihood is there's some uh, functional reason behind it. So I'm going to ask what religion might do, have done for us, and might conceivably might still do in some way. Uh, um, in some ways, more importantly, why religion only evolved in humans, or why religion might only have evolved in humans. I'm not going to pretend that uh, I'm going to offer you a complete explanation for either of these, but I'm going to try and sketch the direction in which we're trying to go and how we're trying to approach this. So that being four kind of interesting hypotheses as to why um, religion might have evolved or, or what religion might do for you at various levels. Uh, most of them look horribly group selectionist, uh, for which reason largely they've probably been uh, rightly ignored by uh, biologists. I kind of want to suggest perhaps that most of them are probably true at one level or another, but they're actually functionally um, this is the one uh, that's absolutely critical. These are actually byproducts um, of, of uh, religion having evolved essentially as a social bonding mechanism. At one level, there is some evidence that religion actually is quite good for you. It's a bit depressing for atheists. <laughs> it, it seems there's quite a lot of data in the sociological and epidemiological literature suggesting that actively religious people live longer they are more content and happier generally, notwithstanding the fact that, that, that many religious people can get, uh, or you often find you know, uh, people with a lot of psychological angst wrapped up in religion, that by and large they're less stressed, etc., etc., etc. I'll kind of suggest a reason why this might be true uh, in passing more than anything else. But even if none of these really is true, uh, I think it kind of misses the point, and, and, and the real point is this, that for most uh, species that live in complex social systems, and that's predominantly mammals, but in, not, uh, including obviously humans, but there are also other examples, they're actually living in multi-level social systems, and what that brings into play is the possibility of multi-level selection processes. So we have tended to concentrate on the immediate fitness payoffs of individuals' decisions about how to behave for, the, let's say, for the last 35 years, 
uh, or so since the so-called sociobiological revolution. But what's kind of emerged out of the woodwork uh, in the last five years or so is the idea that uh, cooperation in some form may place the point at which the fitness, not the fitness benefits, the uh, adaptive benefits, if we can use, put it this way, bite, might actually be different to the point at which the fitness benefits bite. In other words, there are benefits, additional benefits to be gained by cooperation, and you think of cooperative hunting as the sort of archetypal version of that, which trickle down uh, and are still measured out in terms of individual fitness uh, in standard evolutionary terms. And I think this really goes back to Hamilton's original conception of neighbor modulated fitnesses, or neighbor modulated fitnesses, which got sort of he translated into to what we interpret now as, as uh, in standard inclusive fitness. But I do want to be very, very clear about this. This is not group selection, as it's commonly understood. I think the whole literature has been very confused by people using the term group selection in a very uh, highly slippagey sort of way and causing a lot of confusion. This is not selection at the level of the group. These are benefits that accrue through cooperation. That's, that's the argument I want to put down for the evolution of religion. It's actually about mechanisms for trying to create more effective uh, group-level solutions. There are a lot of problems to be solved in that context, I think, yet, yeah, from an evolutionary point of view. But we'll leave this. Okay, so back to the beginning. The beginning really <coughs> emerges out of the so-called social brain hypothesis, the argument for the fact that primates have unusually large brains uh, for body size compared to all other species uh, of animals and birds. And in primates, but interestingly, probably almost uniquely primates, uh, that takes the form of a relationship between group size and relative brain size. And it kind of doesn't matter what you do to these kind of data or how you analyze them, you consistently get a very, very strong si signal uh, for this quantitative effect. Interestingly, it doesn't happen in any other group of birds and mammals with one or two minor exceptions. Uh, <clears throat> the form there is very different, but essentially it's about the nature of social complexity. And in one sense, group size, as the sort of index here, is not the object of the exercise. And this group size effect is actually an emergent property. What it's about is about maintaining and managing complex social relationships. If we uh, plug humans into this with our brain size uh, 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 here, uh, uh, and read across from the great eight line, we get this mystical number 150 is the natural grouping size for humans which has been since christened Dunbar's number thanks to some wit on uh, Wikipedia in the context of this you kind of wonder how this relates to the nature of human sociality because we live in these very big groups where, but if you think about what primates in general are doing, they're living in very intense, close uh, 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 groups where everybody sees each other pretty much every day. So we want to know what the equivalent kind of grouping pattern is really for humans. Our original attempt to do this is summarised in these data here. So look at hunter-gatherer uh, societies around the world and look at the census sizes for groupings and what you find there is a tendency for a hierarchically organized 
social system, very, very characteristic of privacy. You have small groups included in bigger groups, included in bigger groups, included in yet bigger groups. And it's this grouping here, and this was sort of reverse engineered, as it were, in other words, we said we have this number, is there anything that corresponds to that anywhere that's even close? Uh, this grouping level here uh, came out very, very close indeed. The average uh, of that level of grouping in traditional societies is about 148. And it turned out that that's kind of interesting because it is a, a virtual group. It's a group that exists only in the minds of the people. Isn't it? You can't see it on the ground. It's not, it isn't represented in the form of paths or paths, <coughs> which is what these groupings are. Uh, <coughs> this would be in, sort of labelled as something like a clan, uh, particularly in the Australian Aboriginal literature, for example. It's a group of people that come together every year or two for a corroboree to kind of re-establish who they are and go through the puberty rituals and the like. And it then prompted us to uh, start looking elsewhere. One can easily sort of collate a, 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 a vast number, really, of uh, examples of this level of grouping being characteristic. Um, I just want to make too much of that, except they are kind of interesting, intrinsically interesting in their own right, particularly as the reasons why they end up uh, having those sort of groupings. So, but I'll, I'll say no more about it, I'll just point it to uh, these days, which is the beginnings of our attempt to actually look at this in real life now. So trying to look at natural, rather than look at, at uh, groups, to look at sets of uh, social networks, individuals' personal social networks. And we, spent the last six or seven years uh, doing a lot of work on this in some detail and this, is, this was our first effort using Christmas cards as an assay. So who, who are the recipients of the Christmas cards that you send out? Turns out there's a lot of variance around it. That variance is kind of interesting in its own right. But the average is somewhere around about 150 give or take uh, a little bit. So there's some evidence to support the suggestion that a kind of natural human grouping size, if you like, is about 150 at a cognitive level. And that, that's a, a grouping level which really occurs in traditional human societies. Remember, we spent most of our evolutionary history in these kind of uh, social systems. Okay. The problem here, essentially, that all these social systems face is the free rider problem. Because essentially... Like all primate societies, they're implicit social contracts. Or I suppose in human case, they're often explicit social contracts. Their attempts to solve the problems of survival and successful reproduction collaboratively. Uh, <clears throat> but the problem with any such social system is it's always susceptible to invasion by free riders. So this is a nice, or two models, one by Magnus uh, Enquist in Stockholm, uh, and one by Daniel Mack on me. Uh, showing that if you let free riders loose in a, a virtual population, these are com computer models, uh, both of them are essentially SS models, then um, uh, uh, free riders, uh, sorry, in a population of, of cooperators, free riders just wipe out cooperators very quickly. And in fact, it only takes them about 20 generations uh, to do so. Uh, but there's large areas of the state space here when you're establishing coalition time in their model. You have to invest in time in a relationship in order for it to allow you to, to reproduce from it. Uh, and the search time, the time it takes you to find a new prospective partner. There's a vast area of this state space where free riders become extremely successful. You either have to have very 
uh, heavy investment in, in, in coalition time or uh, make it extremely difficult to find naive individuals who aren't, aren't aware of your wicked free-riding ways for free-riders to survive. They, they, they get corralled up in that corner as well. The problem here is then how, how on earth do you minimise the cost of free-riding in these kind of social systems? You will never get rid of them altogether. But you have to be able to keep them down below a certain level in order just to prevent them overwhelming the system. There's been a lot of emphasis on punishment in the evolutionary literature over the last maybe 10 years as a particularly interesting form of mechanism for doing that. Um, and while that's interesting, I think the problem it faces in the end is that if you just think of everyday experience, and indeed this has been the burden of uh, experience in conservation biology, you can make your punishments as draconian as you like for breaking a law, say cutting down trees in a national park. But if the detection rate is very low, the prosecution rate is very low, then people are prepared to take that risk. So the question is, can, can you go the other way and have the kind of carrot version of the carrot and stick argument uh, and have something that induces voluntary commitment? Because it seems to me if you can do that, People, um, people will voluntarily sign up to the social contract, as it were, to the project of the community, then they voluntarily, then their commitment to it is such that it will encourage them to uh, 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 obey the law, as it were, rather than uh, cheat on the system. So how do primates do this? Essentially, it's a the mechanism of primate social bonding, which kind of allows this to happen, is, is a two-component uh, mechanism. It involves a lot of this stuff, grooming, which produces psychopharmacologically a, a massive surge in endorphins, which just makes you feel good with the guys who do this stuff with. And I think off the back, what happens is off the back of that, they're able to build a kind of cognitive uh, relationship or a more cognitive relationship, which allows them to have uh, relationships of trust and reciprocity. And this involves, this, at least in humans, uh, 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 involves the kind of mentalizing um, uh, cognitive processes that we, we, we associate with theory of mind and ability to understand other individuals' minds. Okay. If you look at grooming time uh, distributions in primates, uh, here's a percent of total data I spent grooming against group size. It increases generally, uh, uh, but it sort of tails off here under pressure from uh, ecological time, as, as it were, the need to uh, uh, feed and to find food. Uh, these are all species needs. We've done several analyses now of this kind and with and without uh, kind of phylogenetic methods. And, and you just get the same uh, pattern. It's, there's a, a basically a linear increase. In grooming time, so it looks like the amount of time, the bigger your group, the time you have to invest in social interaction to create these uh, social bonds just increases. Interestingly, it doesn't mean to say you're grooming with more people. In fact, as you go up here uh, and increase social time simultaneously, you actually focus more and more of that, this is in primates, more and more of that on fewer and fewer individuals. So you're trying to reinforce the core relationships you have to support. Uh, the group as a whole, or, or the uh, coherence of the group. So it's actually quite a complicated uh, story. If you plug 
humans with our groups of 150 into this and assume, well, if we were standard jobbing primates, bonding our social groups in this way, how much grooming time would we have to do? It turns out to be about 45% of our day we have to be spent grooming. Here's the limit uh, that primates seem to have, around about 20%. That's a huge amount, I think, about a fifth of their total daytime in these very social species being um, spent grooming. You look at actual social time in real human populations, these are a sample of seven human populations from all over the world, time actually spent engaged in social interaction. It averages out almost exactly at 20% at this upper limit for primates. So remember, these are individual fat populations, these are averages for species, so there's a lot of variance around that too. Uh, <clears throat> so it looks like somehow we're using the same amount of social time as primates, actually sort of pushing the absolute upper limit that we can afford to do, but somehow we're using that time more efficiently to bridge that gap. That's effectively what I call the bonding gap. This is predicted grooming time for individual fossil populations of hominids plotted against time. So this is done simply by uh, interpolating through a series of equations from cranial volume size uh, through uh, to neocortex volume to social group size and finally to grooming time using the equations from, that we have for primates. Here again is the uh, upper limit for grooming timing in primates in general. Scarlopithecines being jobbing apes as they seem to be turning out doing what other primates do. Here's what we do now up here. Um, and you can see this kind of steady rise in time. So somehow we needed to bridge that. So my sense is that what's happened is these three mechanisms have come into play and probably done so successively uh, and in that kind of order. Uh, although exactly when is an interesting question. If we could, I think what's happening here uh, uh, is that in order to break through this glass ceiling, you, this mechanism which is common to us and uh, 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 chimpanzees certainly what other great apes is being exploited and adapted to allow us to break through that to increase group size. It's raising the glass ceiling somewhere, and you're all right up to that point. But again, to push through it, you need something else. And it looks like this comes into play. What's interesting about uh, these two here into language, and of course this is dependent on language ultimately, is that they all depend on some critical fundamental processes which are common to the more principally segmentation and, uh, and synchronization. Just a little bit of evidence to, to show you that all of these, or what I should say, is all of these look to me like being very good releases of endorphins. And given that endorphins are designed to make you feel very happy with, if you like, with the, in simple terms, with those whom you do these activities with, it looks like a good candidate mechanism for creating this sense of community that you want to create in order to override uh, the temptation to uh, free ride. Uh, and what's interesting about the endorphin mechanism, it appears to be unique to primates. And the reason it's been suggested it's unique to primates is primates have these very bonded relationships compared to most other mammals and birds, not all, but most other, uh, and needed some, and they tend to be lifelong as opposed to, to, to short term. So some deeper psychopharmacological mechanism is actually needed to underpin those, uh, different to the more general 
uh, endocrine mechanisms that appear in widely, certainly through the mammals, so the oxidosin vasopressin uh, axis. So just a little bit of evidence to suggest that endorphins do come, uh, get generated by uh, these things. Here's uh, 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 one of versus com- combination of two uh, of our studies of LAFCO. We've now uh, done this on a number of times and at the moment replicating it yet again. Uh, uh, and the standard format is uh, endorphins being part of the pain control system. We use a pain assay uh, beforehand. Subjects do an activity, they get a retest afterwards. And if you have a, if the activity is producing an upsurge in endorphin production, so your pain threshold should be higher afterwards than before. And generally speaking, we use uh, how long you can stand an old-fashioned uh, blood pressure monitor on your arm as the assay for pain. So this lot here, the control group, uh, these are all individuals. Uh, they're watching videos in groups of four, and they're reporting how much time individuals spend laughing. This is a very boring uh, video, a tourist uh, video. Sometimes we use a golf video because that's even more boring. <laughs> um, uh, or they're watching comedy videos. So uh, you know, various sort of stand-up comedians, uh, usually, or things like Friends or, or things like that. They generally produce a lot of laughter. So here there's really not a, a lot of change, a lot of variance around that. Uh, here, by, by was it somebody who's never read the paper before, the tutorials we've taken, and get it completely wrong. But in general, there's a nice, even excluding that, there's a significant relationship between the amount of time spent laughing and the shift in um, uh, 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 endorphin level and pain tolerances compared uh, to, to, to this group over time. So what we've now done is follow that up by looking to see whether, with this format, people who laugh together are actually more generous to each other afterwards. So this is it. This is a public good game. Uh, people are uh, playing this game in pairs after they've done this. They're being asked either to play uh, with somebody they know, uh, a friend, if you like, or a complete stranger. Uh, uh, one of the pairs given five pounds and asked to split it with the other. Uh, uh, they either watch a comedy video or a very boring video and with friends you're pretty generous you're approximately splitting half and half but notice what happens with strangers if, if you're watching if you've been watching a boring video and then uh, engage in this task with a stranger you give them less than a fifth of the pot and keep four fifths to yourself but if you laughed a lot even though not in the presence of a stranger as it were, not with them but just laughed a lot, you're much more generous you're now treating strangers as they're their friends and we get pretty much the same story out of music this is uh, a combination of four separate studies to try and look at and tease apart what's going on in here uh, this is singing against uh, no singing actually religious services uh, so this is a charismatic group, this is just a, a standard Anglican prayer group with no uh, singing. This is uh, 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 trying to look at music performance, particularly in the context of symphony. This is a, a drumming circle. These are uh, the two control groups, are, uh, uh, a bunch of our MSc students watching a very boring video on drug addiction. Uh, this is a group of uh, people serving, uh, uh, salespeople in a, in a music shop. Here, we're, they're just listening to music through earphones. This, oh, that one, that one. this is 
the lot just listening to music through earphones. This is fast, rhythmically strong. This is slow, uh, rhythmically weak performances. And this is trying to look at, again, the difference between active and sort of less intense, less flowing music performance. So these are uh, groups of people who are engaged in dance groups and the like. These are people engaged in practice sessions where they're constantly being interrupted. The music performance just doesn't flow. And the results are very messy. It's partly because of these assays for endorphins uh, 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 are not as precise as you would like them to be as it might create some of individual difference. But uh, the, these results are uh, nicely significant. Uh, performance of that, uh, active performance of music produces this endorphin surge. Just listening to it doesn't do something about the, the actual activity per se. Okay, so one's led to ask whether, in the context of many religions around the world, many of the practices uh, are designed to do this, the same kind of thing. I mean, you think that the flagellants have been many uh, sects advocating flagellation as a good thing. Um, uh, 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 but one also thinks of the role of music and singing in almost all <laughs> religions. So these are uh, uh, whirling dervishes, one of the uh, Sufi sects of Islam, one of the mystical sects who use these twirling dancers to uh, bring themselves up into uh, uh, trance-like states. And I think in, in this is sort of almost going back to archetypal trance dancing in, in traditional hunter-gatherers, shamanistic-type religions. Okay, so the question is, well, you know, if it's just endorphins, why don't you go and out and do it on your own? I think folks like Simon Stylites sitting on the top of their pillar, you know, in effect, they're probably getting a good endorphin surge by doing something that's very stressful for the body. Uh, the, the answer really is that there seems to be something about doing it together that hypes up this effect. Right? Yes, you get an endorphin surge from all these kind of everyday activities we engage in, but if you do it in a group, as a group, then you get, seem to get an added uplift. And our, our kind of evidence for that really comes off the back of this study in which we use the Blue and Goldie boat crews uh, here in Oxford, the university boat crews. So these are seriously professional uh, rowers. And the important thing about rowing at that level is not the power in the boat because everybody, every crew you meet has essentially the same power. It's about synchrony. If you don't synchronise perfectly, you will lose. That's essentially what happened to Oxford this year. They just hit their rhythm. Cambridge hit their rhythm very early on. And this is, this is actually uh, somewhere in the blue boat here, the Oxford boat, was the person that uh, actually did the study for us, who was at the time president of the rowing, rowing club. Uh, and again, this year they lost. Well, just look, you know, these three guys are in perfect timing. They're, they're also nearly upright. He's out. Number seven here is out. His oar is flat. So they're losing power from that alone. So synchrony is incredibly important. It's a very nice sort of little experimental uh, uh, situation, as it were, for looking at the effects of synchrony. So here's the result. Um, <clears throat> they did this twice. So these are the composite data for all, all 12 individuals that we had in, in the test. So it's virtually the two crews from the Blue and Goldie boats. Um, they did it first alone, and then uh, later on in the week they did it as a virtual 
boat. It's two virtual boats of six. And it's very easy. They're doing it on these machines, which is how you do your training these days. Uh, uh, compared to when I was used to run 30 years ago. Um, uh, you can get... The nice thing about this is you can be sure that when they're doing it under different conditions, they're doing it at exactly the same output rate, so you can exclude the physical effort involved and isolate out the good effect. Uh, and what they do is they can hook these up, machines up, as it were, on a computer, so they're rowing in, 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 effectively in a virtual boat together. So this is, and then they repeated this uh, a, a week later, so they ran the whole thing twice. You can see both leaks very nicely. Yes, you get a nice little ramp up from just the effort. This is 45 minutes of workout. Huge amount of effort that they're putting in. But in each case, uh, uh, doing it in a group seems to be this added up there. The, uh, blood pressure? This, yes, this is the same blood pressure. Uh, so the y-axis says millimeters mercury. Sorry? The y-axis says millimeters mercury. Yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's the level to which they can hold it. They're being taken up. How, 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 in this case, how high uh, can we pump the thing till you scream in pain? Oh, well, no, I didn't say that. I'm being taken. Uh, at what point, did it, as, you know, if you're pumping up the pressure on the arm, at what point do you start to feel serious pain? Okay. Um, so the question, going back to the kinds of uh, uh, mechanisms that might underpin uh, the effects religion has in this context, seem to me uh, uh, twofold. Uh, two One is uh, the endorphin uh, release itself. What's interesting about endorphins is they do seem to tune the immune system. That may be why you get these health benefits that appear to be associated with it. But the important thing is that they're pushing into here and somehow creating, and I don't think we really understand what's going on here, uh, a sense of belonging to a, a community. And I emphasize at this point particularly a small-scale community, a very small community. And there's nice evidence from a number of studies now up here that belonging to a community, and particularly that this is in terms of kinship, uh, the effects of kinship, the sense of that we belong to an extended kinship group, does have real uh, fitness benefits. There's, there's two very nice studies, one from the 1950s in Newcastle, one from Trinidad about only uh, about eight or nine years ago, showing illness rates in children are much lower in communities that, or, or in families that have extended, which are large extended kinships than in, in families which are small ones. And there are some archetypal cases that the Americans, I'm sure, will know well. Uh, the Mayflower colonists, the Donner Party going over to California in the 1840s uh, as part of the uh, uh, move to the West, as it were, showing that the probability of dying was related to whether or not you were in a family group. And it seems to be not a function of the fact there's lots of people rushing around helping you out, uh, so those, on average, those who survived in these disasters where you had very, very high mortality rates were, were much more closely related to members of the community as a whole uh, than those who died, so it's to the whole community. Uh, it seems to be something to do with this sort of rather nebulous sense of belonging to a, a community as well. Okay. So I just want to bring in uh, some very nice data by Rich Sotis. Uh, published some years ago, showing 
first of all, um, that the probability of survival through time of religious communists, and this was done off the basis of the very nice data set of 19th century American utopian cults, that religious communes survived much longer uh, than purely secular ones. There seemed to be something about a, having a kind of spiritual component, I suppose you might want to put it, or a sense of a transcendental dimension to it, that seems to just make it work better. But I think this is kind of, it, it's these data which I find really very nice. Uh, this is the things you have to give up, as it were, to be a member of the community. So it's a measure of your level of commitment. And in secular communities, the survival time of, of the community is measured by community duration uh, is pretty much level pegging all the way through. It doesn't matter whether you're just giving up cigarettes or whether you're giving up meat sex and all the rest of it. Uh, uh, but in religious communities, deliberately religious communities, the more you give up, the more your commitment to that group seems to be and the longer the community lasts. I always tell him that the problem here is uh, that, that invariably the ones that are at this end is that they're having to give up sex as well. Yeah. <laughs> and that is hugely removing one of the <laughs> major causes of strife. Sorry. Tell us what's on the axis. Oh, sorry, okay. Probably, yes, I'm sorry, you probably can't read about that. This is the number of uh, things you have to give up from zero here to about 20 up there. So, so you know, giving up tobacco, giving up meat, giving up uh, swearing, giving up uh, 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 you know, sex in, in, in some iconic cases. And this is simply the duration of the commune uh, in, in years. So it's zero down here, it's 140 up there. <coughs> Okay, so it's just a sense that maybe there's something that kicks in here. I don't really understand what it is or why it should be. There seems to be something that kicks in if you put a religious dimension onto it. Uh, and in a sense, that's something we, we clearly have to kind of explain. Uh, <clears throat> there's also, and this comes back again to this point about religions in, in the context of very small communities. So I think what its origins are, this is what it's trying to do, it's trying to create a very small community structure. And I think it's perhaps one of the reasons why you find religions constantly uh, throwing off cults and sects all the time, that you can build a big hierarchical dogmatic type religion, but it is constantly trying to fractionate. In that sense, it's very, very much like language. Okay, so this is uh, <clears throat> some nice uh, stuff from, uh, essentially from, from Randy Thornhill, and collaborators showing that uh, the number of religions per country that you get is correlated with the disease richness of the country and as a result pretty much with latitude as well. Uh, and similarly here, the shift from individualism to collectivism uh, likewise related to uh, disease richness or pathogen prevalence. And likewise in turn some of Daniel Nettles stuff showing that uh, the number of languages you get uh, is related to the growing season. The growing season, again, is a function of latitude. So these are, uh, are, are tropical. These are, sorry, these are uh, tropical. They've got 12 months of growing season in the air. These are high latitude uh, 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 areas up, up, up here or down the south. 
with very short growing seasons and therefore very unpredictable habitats. And this is the number of languages you get uh, per area, per, per unit area. This is the number of religions, in this case per country, probably against disease richness of the problem. It's a fairly crude level of analysis, but it's uh, quite nice and the same here. Uh, in the percentage uh, index of individualism of international uh, uh, sociological work, uh, uh, UN databases for individual countries against disease framework. So this again is in the tropics. This is uh, at high latitudes. And the argument here, this goes back to really to Daniel Nettle's argument, is at high latitudes, things are very unpredictable. You need a big community to trade among or to reciprocate with in order to bail yourself out when things get better. But, and this is a sort of uh, two opposing factors argument that, that's very common in, in ecology. At low latitudes, uh, on the tropics, disease prevalence forces you really to worry about uh, too much interfacing and interaction with the guys next door. Because if you've developed nice adaptations to your local set of um, uh, diseases and pathogens, then what you don't want to be doing is mixing too much with the guys in, over the hill and picking up their pathogens, which they are adapted, but you aren't. And so the argument really is one of, certainly in the tropics, you want to try and reinforce more community membership, as it were. These are the mechanisms of doing it, either through languages. That's why languages fractionate so much. It's very odd argument. Language evolves... Uh, functionally to allow you to exchange knowledge and what do you do with it it's constantly breaking up into dialects which prevent you doing that there must be something else going on that's what seems to be going on here that you want to have these kind of various mechanisms and badges of community membership which allow you to close in in the tropics where you have uh, 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 a real serious problem from this point of view but at high latitudes uh, you actually need to release that that effect because you want to have bigger uh, communities. So again, in some, I'm sort of putting this to you as evidence that uh, religion again is, has its origins in, small, in trying to reinforce small-scale communities. So th this is trying to look at the 19th century um, uh, uh, utopian cult data to see if we can identify whether there's an, an optimal size for communities uh, in these terms. And the answer is here, if you look at the relative proportions of uh, grouped communities at, founding, at foundation of different sizes against what you'd expect uh, uh, under a sort of null, the null hypothesis, as it were, then very small groups tend to be rather infrequent. The most common groups are up here, somewhere between about 150 and 140. Again, <coughs> it's tailing off. And if you look at the survival times of those in terms of uh, size of foundation here, it looks very much like in this region of about 150 to about 400 is the optimum. If you can get up to that sort of size, things survive much longer. If they're too small or too large, they simply fall apart and can't do it. Interestingly, again, you see the, the effect of the secular versus religious dimension here. The open uh, circles are the uh, secular uh, communes, uh, the uh, solid circles here of the religious ones, you can see, tending to be rather high. 
So how does the role of cognition fit into this? So this is the brain component of it. Uh, social cognition, as it's come to be known, is this kind of mentalizing stuff. So this is on the sort of standard uh, levels of, uh, uh, of intentionality. Jack here is in first order uh, intentional states. He believes that something is the case. Jules in second order. She believes, Jack believes that something is the case. This is standard theory of mind and where almost all this work has been done until very recently. But in principle, as has been pointed out by the philosophers of mind uh, endlessly, this goes on forever uh, in a sort of hierarchically reflexive uh, uh, pattern. In fact, if you um, uh, look at what humans naturally do, and these are one of our three now three studies looking at this, the kind of m maximum achievable level that people can do is around about fifty. Uh, intentionality, that's, uh, that's five recursive uh, loops. Uh, and in fact, performance on those tasks correlates with the size of your social group. Uh, so the size of your sort of inner core social network correlates very nicely, uh, albeit messily, with uh, how well you can do on these kind of tasks, how far you can go on these uh, legs. I suspect the ends here uh, of this, these distribution are themselves kind of artifactual of the way we have to do these kind of analysis. But there's a lot of variance, even somewhere in there, within the, the normal population. So it makes me wonder how competences on these kind of things would relate to the kind of religion you might expect to find. So this is rather back of an envelope, kind of an attempt to just sketch out the limits you might have if all you could work was, let's say, third-order intentionality or fourth-order intentionality or ultimately fifth-order intentionality in terms of the kinds of things that you could say. And I kind of, my intuition here is we're still struggling to figure out how to apply a lot of these ideas in, in, in experimental terms, is that at this point, essentially you have personal religion. You can come along to me and say, I believe that X is the case, etc., etc., uh, fill in all the blanks. Uh, and I go, well, why should I care? You know, okay, if you make me toe the line with your army, fine. But that there may be a phase transition into fifth order whereby if I accept what you say is true, I'm actually committing myself to it. So I'm kind of uh, wondering whether, one of, if in a sense, one of the byproducts of getting to fifth order intentionality in terms of social, purely social relationships, is that allowed you to handle a kind of religious uh, complex in, in, in a way which now made it much more communal in its kind of effect. So the question one might ask is, in this context, well, since it appears to be unique to humans, why is it unique to humans? And my pitch really is simply that if you look at the achievable levels of intentionality that other monkeys and apes can do as a function of brain volume, so this is frontal lobe volume here, which is where really all the work is, turns out to be being done from, from our neuroimaging studies uh, as well as other people's work. It really seems to be the frontal lobes that are critical in this social context. Uh, apes can just about do second-order intentionality. Some people think they can't, some people think they can, and I'm prepared to give them the benefit of the doubt. Um, monkeys, everybody agrees, are at first order. Here are at fifth order. And it's, it's just an absolute straight line against that, which is, you know, given that it's uh, these points could be absolutely anywhere. Uh, quite encouraging, I think. So we can kind of use that to do something like 
date the origins of religion, simply by mapping through in the way I did with the grooming time phenomena, uh, starting with failure volumes, using that uh, to estimate uh, true brain volume and neocortex volumes, and then from that frontal lobe volume, uh, and uh, from frontal lobe volume into levels of intentionality. And if you plot that against time for individual fossil populations, it seems to me, yeah, you know, archaic humans, that almost certainly includes the Neanderthals, uh, they'd be confused by where they are. Uh, uh, they, there are reasons for thinking anatomically they should be down there, but this is just a crude uh, cranial volume. Uh, they can do fourth order intentionality, they can have religion, but it's fourth order religion, not fifth, modern fifth order religion. It's really only modern humans that have crossed that critical fifth order intentional boundary. So, okay, just to sum up half a dozen points, really. In social contract societies like those of humans, um, they risk collapse and you lose the benefit of, of the contractors, if you like, the corporation uh, in strict fitness terms. Uh, from free riders who need some mechanism to force them into cohesion. And the kind of analogy here, I think, is, is really coming back to the way social insects do it. You know, there have been a lot of interest a long time ago, in perhaps humans are social interest. I'm here think they might have been right. But uh, uh, in primates, this involves a two kind of process mechanism, a cognitive one and a pharmacological one, if you like, that are pulled together that maybe in that context, using that to create voluntary commitment to the project, as it were, might be more effective uh, uh, than, than a pure punishment mechanism, although it leaves some evolutionary issues uh, to be resolved here, I think. Uh, that religion and ritual, in particular the, the rituals of religion, may be very critical in these kind of contexts. That religion evolved and still is a very, very small-scale phenomenon. You can make it a big-scale phenomenon but it's constantly susceptible to fragmentation because it keeps going back to this kind of small-scale effect. But it's designed as a consequence to reinforce in-group outgroup effects. And in a sense, Durkheim was probably right, at least in his kind of arguments about effervescence. Uh, probably not in his sort of more group selectionist standard sociology type arguments, obviously. Uh, there are other benefits of these processes, and I do think that these mechanisms, except the pharmacological mechanisms, at least the pharmacological mechanisms, probably do have genuine byproducts, but they are uh, pure byproducts. And lastly, but not least, religion, as, as we have it anyway, has to be a very recent phenomenon. That last graph, sketchy as it is, uh, suggests that it, it really couldn't have evolved in the form of heaven much before the rise of modern humans. And on that note, Thank you very much. I'll stop there. Well, how to comment on that on the roof, I'm not sure. Um, I haven't taken it all in, Robert. It's so dense. Um, but uh, So all I can do, really, is work, raise one or two points which occurred to me en passant. One was, is this significant... Um, about three slides from the end, you pointed out that the secular cults had an optimal group size that was much less, and it looked as though the difference was the difference between your projected uh, group size if you went by grooming time and, the and going into religion. So it looks as though that exactly fits your, um, 
your suggestion that religion might be the thing which makes the distinction between the projected group size for humans based on grooming yeah. time and this 150 yeah. gets you there. So that looks like a very interesting kind of reinforcement yeah. of the hypothesis. Um, just generally on evolutionary issues, and you say there's massive more research, I don't know how much of this you've done, there's a difference between the explanation of how a phenomenon arose and the question of why it got selected for. Now I take it that what you're saying is the phenomenon of religion could arise because we got these higher levels of intentionality. But then there's the question of why they got selected for. And what I'm not sure is how much feedback you think there is from the kind of religion that got selected for into the nature of humans. That is, do you think the levels of intentionality got higher as we developed religions? Or do you think we had the levels of intentionality first and then religion was just rather a good way of sorting it out? I just wonder about that. And the rest is just purely bits that occur to me en passant. One is the question of different kinds of religion for different sorts of society. And I was connecting this with two things. Uh, one is Jared Diamond's idea that religion is completely different in small groups. This would be in the 150s. And when you get into large-scale societies which have to be kept together, and that's where you really need the transcendental God with threats of punishment and also the legitimation of the authority which pins it down, which I presume is completely different from the release of endorphins in small groups getting ecstatic. I also connected, just again off the top of my head, with Jack Miles's biography of God, which is just the study of how God changed through the Old Testament, which again is very interesting because if you are brought up in conventional Judeo-Christian kind, well, certainly Christianity, when the whole of religion is rewritten in the light of Christ having been prophesied to Abraham and stuff. It all looks completely different when you start doing it from the beginning instead of reinterpreting it backwards. And um, the early God of the Jews in this, this way is something completely different from the organized religions that around later. I also wonder how you see the connection with morality in the sense described by Jonathan Haidt, which is your willingness to exert punishment on other group members in contexts where it's a cost to you and no immediate benefit to you. And that obviously connects with religion, but it doesn't seem to connect necessarily with religion. That is, it could be something that developed without religion. Anyway, just a whole lot of questions. It's yeah. fascinating. So I think we yeah, do yeah, sure. a couple of those. Yeah. 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 Very good of you to spot that one. Um, uh, because it does, what's interesting about this uh, 50 level here is that it is the kind of upper, upper limit for uh, non-human primate groups. So it looks very much as though that's the best you can do with kind of jobbing uh, kind of uh, inter inter interactions, as it were, that you do need something else being reflected here, maybe or maybe not, in the nature of 
how religion bonds small-scale societies. And, and so perhaps that's the other point I might just elaborate on a bit. And my kind of view, I suppose, is that, and I take this really from, from the kind of history of religion people, that religion has its origins in these kind of shamanistic type religions, which are essentially experiential. And they don't, by and large, have a theology. They don't have gods. You go off into the spirit world and you bump into ancestors and animal spirits and you might have the odd godlike sort of uh, 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 person whatever they are uh, there whom you bump into in some cases but that at some and, you know that's the kind of basic format to it and that's what's really working at this kind of 150 kind of level but it seems to me that we've had a major phase transition that occurred with the Neolithic settlement because what you did with the Neolithic settlement uh, what, 8,000 years ago, something of that order, is moved from having dispersed individuals where the tensions that inevitably happen in, in all social living species that actually drive individuals apart and break up natural groups, if you like, uh, partly through uh, ecological competition, part directly and indirectly, living in bigger groups forces you to travel further and all these kind of things, but also partly through the effects that stresses have on things like the female uh, menstrual endocrinology system, so that uh, living in large groups you end up with infertile females because their menstrual cycles are messed up so badly by the constant low levels of harassment you get from just the commuter effect. Right, and you know the, these are now well understood in both primates and humans. They're very widespread effects. So one way of dissipating those is to allow people to disperse and only come together in, in these fission fusion social systems. But with the Neolithic trans, tra, tra, transition and settlement, you've got everybody crowded together, and that must jack up these kind of stresses in particular, these, these kind of social stresses. And it does seem to be interesting that the sh perhaps the shift into more hierarchical, dogmatic religions occur at that point, because that's when you first start to see things that look like ritual spaces, temples, if you like, or the like. So it looks like you, uh, to get to maintain coherence in these groups, which are now much bigger than 150, uh, as you go into the, 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 the uh, Neolithic transition, uh, you need something to bind these, to force these to bind together. And in the end, it's back to military. What, what's actually interesting about these uh, group size effects, that 150 is simply one of a series of layers in your social network that you can identify in grouping patterns as well. So that kind of, in the ethnographic data perhaps, was clear. Um, uh, and we, we, the smallest layer, inner core layer to you is a group of about five very intimate friends and, and uh, relations. But we know at least of two other layers. So fifth, they scale in, in, in a very regular pattern. This is true, it turns out, of multi-level uh, living mammals as well. It's not just peculiar to humans. So you've got a layer of five, a layer of 50, and a layer of 50, 150. And then we know from the data there's at least another layer at 500 and another layer at 1500. And I, I do like to point out that Plato got the next layer out. He said his ideal democracy size is 5,300, <laughs> which, which would be absolutely bang on, allowing for the fact that he didn't know any statistics. But <laughs> we'll give him the extra 300. Uh, so that's kind of 
Uh, what, what's interesting in this is then you can make these bigger and bigger groups, but you have to have a different mechanism. And what's really neat, in a way, is that you can see this mirrored very, very nicely in the structure of modern armies. So this is the base size of the basic unit in modern armies. The, the smallest unit that can stand on its own two feet. That's the company. Give or take a bit, they all average around about here. Um, British Army is a bit smaller, the American Army is uh, quite a bit bigger, but sort of somewhere in the order of about 150, 160 is, is the norm. And the, that's, people who've been in the military will tell you that there's a big difference between what life in the company is like and what life beyond it is like. All the competitions that go on in the army, for example, in the military, are not between regiments or between battalions, it's between companies within the battalion. Your company is family. And that after that, in order to keep coherence, you need badges, hierarchies, ranks, and discipline above all. So it looks like a real phase shift. And maybe that's sort of paralleled by the shift from kind of uh, experiential religions to kind of more dogmatic religions.